Today on the Matt Wall Show, rioting ravages another American city after a black man was killed by police. Yet hundreds of white people have been killed by cops over the past year, and there has not been one protest or riot over any of those deaths, if you've noticed. What does that tell us? We'll talk about that. Also, five headlines, including the media already beginning to preemptively slander the jurors in the Derek Chauvin case. And the governor of Arkansas continues his media tour to try and justify his support for child castration. It's not going well. Also, polls show that many Americans would like The Rock to run for president. Almost 50% want The Rock to run for president. Why? We'll talk about that, plus our daily cancellation, and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. So the film rewinds itself and replays again and again, more rioting in an American city on Sunday night, this time back in Minneapolis, Ground Zero, the place where our Groundhog's Day uh, nightmare began a year ago. In a possible preview of the rioting that will probably happen when the Derek Chauvin trial concludes, no matter how it concludes, BLM militants smashed police cars, assaulted police officers, vandalized police stations, looted local businesses. Video footage shows the pillagers ransacking shoe stores, auto parts, retailers, pharmacies, dollar stores, even pizza restaurants, a little Caesars. They rioted, stole some packages of dough, I guess. I don't know why. As we've learned in recent months, no ointment can numb the pain of systemic racism quite like an armful of stolen merchandise. At least that's what we're supposed to believe. Now, the thing that caused the latest round of rioting is, as always, the depravity and moral degeneracy of the rioters themselves. That, that's really what causes it. But the ostensible excuse, the cover for the chaos, is the death of a man named Dante Wright, who was shot and killed by Brooklyn Center police during a traffic stop earlier in the afternoon. Brooklyn Center is a, a town, uh, I think, to the north of Minneapolis, nearby. Uh, not many details are currently available about this incident, and as of yet, the body cam footage has not been released. The details don't matter anyway, right? They never do. BLM has its narrative, which is always the same narrative, and is adjusted only to include the few sketchy and superficial details that get imprinted immediately onto the public conscious, right? Um, in this case, the detail is that Wright was pulled over, allegedly, for an air freshener. Now, to hear people on Twitter tell it, uh, and, I have, and I have seen it phrased exactly this way, Wright was shot by the cops for having an air freshener. They pulled him out of the car, executed him on the spot for the air freshener, but really because they're racist. This is the narrative. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. And incidentally, it is almost certainly not true, as any rational person would immediately suspect. Doesn't mean the shooting was justified, but any person with a brain knows when they hear that story, there's got to be more to it, right? Based on the few seemingly reliable details that had been provided, Wright was initially pulled over for a traffic violation. Maybe it was the air freshener. It doesn't really matter. But then it was discovered that he had an outstanding warrant. Officers, officers tried to apprehend him, but he ran back to his vehicle. He was shot at some point during that process. He drove away and crashed shortly after. As journalist Andy No reports, Wright had previously posted many pictures on social media of himself flashing gang signs, using drugs, and so on. Now, none of this makes the shooting justified, but it does point to there being more to the story than just an innocent guy with an air freshener. There's always more to the story, of course. It's possible that the shooting was still unjustified, that he was murdered, that it's all as bad or nearly as bad as BLM says it is. But if that's the case, it will be by mere happenstance. BLM will automatically claim that every shooting of a black man by police is a racist execution. Perhaps one of these days they'll accidentally be right. I mean, they haven't been right even once so far about everything. When you, when you take any individual incident, all the things that BLM says about that incident, They've never been right about all of those things. And in terms of, uh, of, of the most basic claim of a cop shooting a black man because of racism, they have literally never been right about that. That has never turned out to be true. Not once. Maybe this will be the one occasion where they're right. I doubt whether this is such an occasion, but um, I'll wait for time and evidence to tell the whole story. 
Whatever really happened with Dante Wright? What we can say for sure is that the average BLM or Antifa radical out in the streets protesting doesn't care what really happened with Dante Wright. Even less do they care about police brutality or fascism. Least of all, do they feel any actual pain over the loss of life. The anger is performance. The tears are for show. It's, this is all one big stage play. When they're out in the street crying because of Dante Wright, I don't believe the tears, and you shouldn't either. The only thing that's real is the physical destruction they cause. Everything else is fake. Now, if that seems like a harsh assessment, consider the fact that between January 1st, 2020 and March 31st, 2021, over these past 15 or 16 months, when rioting over alleged police brutality has been so on trend, there have been 507 white people shot to death by police compared to 271 black people. And yet somehow, nobody knows the name of any of those white people, save one, Ashley Babbitt. She was an unarmed woman shot in the neck and killed by Capitol Police on January 6th. We know her name, not because BLM rallied to her cause, but because they so conspicuously refused to rally to her cause. Indeed, her, her death was more likely to be celebrated by the very people who'd spent the previous year pretending to care about the killing of unarmed civilians. Anytime you see uh, someone with BLM in their, in their, their Twitter profile, um, and they're lamenting the, 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 the death of Dante Wright or George Floyd or anyone else, search their name and then the name Ashley Babbitt and see what they had to say about her. Because I will tell you right now, it's either nothing or they were celebrating it. Aside from Babbitt, the names of the other white people killed by police are known only to their families and friends. Not one protest has been staged on their behalf. Not one riot has broken out. Not one building burned, to the, burned in their honor. Not one pair of shoes looted from a footlocker. You know, it's a curious thing that those who are still overwhelmed by the pain of George Floyd's death a year later, they haven't gotten over it. They're just overwhelmed. They didn't know him. They didn't know anything about him. They're overwhelmed by the pain. It's curious that they can be so selective in that pain. Was Floyd more deserving of mourning? Was Dante Wright more deserving of mourning than any average white person killed by the cops? Now, the excuse most commonly given for this disparity in coverage and outrage is that while black people are killed by police less often, um, when you account for population disparities, they are still more likely to be killed by police. And I've addressed this claim many times. Now, even if this statistic needed no qualification, how does that explain or justify the fact that people who protest alleged police brutality never protest alleged police brutality against white people? The fact that it happens proportionally less often, what, that means that it's not an outrage? It's not a tragedy? The fact, the, the fact that black people are more likely to be killed by police means that George Floyd's death warrants a year of public wailing and mourning, and the death of a white man warrants no public wailing or mourning at all? Okay, because the proportionality of outrage is, is there's 0%. You want to talk about percentages? You want to say that there's a, there's a smaller percentage of white people killed by cops. Okay. But the percentage of outrage over those killings is zero. Zero percent. It appears that the Black Lives Matter crowd really does believe that only black lives matter. Or at least that they matter quite a bit more than white lives. What other conclusion could one draw? Now, as it happens, the statistic cited earlier does require a qualification. Yes, a black person is more likely to be killed by police, but a black person is also more likely to commit violent crime. If we're talking about proportionality, we have to look at the whole picture. The whole picture, even after just a glance, severely complicates the simplified racial narrative that you hear from the BLM set. But again, this is beside the present point. That doesn't even matter for the point that I'm making here. No statistic can explain why the emotional reaction from the so-called anti-fascists should be so selective. Why they should remain sitting on their hands while white people are shot dead, waiting until someone with a darker skin tone suffers that same fate. Real moral outrage 
doesn't work like that. And that's how we know that none of the outrage we're seeing is real. None of it is real. It is all performance. It is all fake. It is ideological. Really, when it comes down to it. And we should always remember that, especially in the months ahead, because there's going to be a lot more of this, a lot more. Now let's get to our five headlines. Quick word from our good friends at constitutioncoach.com. Listen, first of all, it is, uh, what is it, April 12th. So you got uh, just a couple of weeks left to sign up for Constitution Coach uh, and their, their class on April 25th. So you want to do that right after I'm done talking. Make sure you do that because my friends over at constitutioncoach.com have a lot of great programs for equipping citizens to defend liberty by studying and living out the Constitution. I've experienced their constitutional defense course myself. I can wholeheartedly recommend it, and I, I just take my word on it and go do it. You won't, rec- you won't uh, regret it, believe me. You get an amazing combination of intellectual ammunition and live classes with Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach, and then you also get the physical training at the premier firearms training facility in the nation. You get all this in the same course. You get to join hundreds of other patriots from across the nation for a time of learning, training, fellowship with like-minded people, and that's a really important part of this as well. Um, and these, uh, look, I, I went to a whole new skill level through this. They'll do the same for you. No matter where you're starting from, it doesn't matter. So don't just get a gun. Learn how to carry with confidence and get the training you need at constitutioncoach.com. Rick and the Constitution Coach team have another class on April 25th. It'll fill up fast, so go now to constitutioncoach.com. Okay, well, speaking of rioting to come, it's already started. Well, the rioting has already started, but... Um, Something else that's already started is, is uh, the, the attacking of the jurors in the Derek Chauvin case. Now, we know, you know, if Derek Chauvin is acquitted or if he's found, if he's found guilty on a lesser charge, um, what's going to happen right away is that we're going to get the media and the left attacking the jurors and accusing them all of being racist. And, you know, even though there's, I, I, don't, I don't know off the top of my head what the racial configuration of the jury is. Um, we can certainly assume that there are black and white on the jury, but they're all going to be racist. They're all tools of white supremacy if he's acquitted or, or found guilty on a lesser charge. Um, the only maybe surprise here is that, that you would have thought they'd wait until the verdict is read before they start this process, but they're not. So I guess that MSNBC already attacking the jurors in the Chauvin case. Let's listen to that. But then we have to think about the juror. And you have to remember, this jury has been seated with ignorance. It's been seated with people who either did not see the video, which is almost impossible to do in this country, or saw the video and couldn't decide if sometimes maybe black people do need to be choked to death for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Maybe they had it coming. So those are the people that we're talking to here. It's not talking to me. It's not trying to convince you. That, that ship sailed long ago, right? They're trying to convince 12 people that have been picked specifically for not knowing things. And so that's what that's what frightens me. No, they don't need to put Chauvin on the stand. They need one juror to refuse yeah. to see reason. <laughs> what frightens him, he's just discovered how juries work. He never knew how juries, this, this guy, I don't know, you, you know what this guy's name is. Um, we'll just, we'll just, for simple, simple, you know, to make it simple, we'll just call him uh, a moron because that's what he is. So this moron, has just discovered how juries work in the United States. That's what fr- that's what frightens him. What frightens him is that the jury is objective. You know, it scares me. Is it going to be objective? You know, what really frightens me in this case is that the jury the jury um, didn't go into this with a verdict already in mind. They didn't go into this with preconceived assumptions. And by the way, they probably did. Okay, um, we we can't really know what's going on inside their minds. But here's what he is worried that the jury selection process may have worked exactly as it's supposed to work. Now, if you care about things like justice and truth and, you know, the the rule of law, uh, which, of course, nobody on MSNBC does. But if you do, then your concern about jury selection in any case is the opposite of that. What you're worried about is that there are people who slip through the cracks who already made up their mind before going in. And there's no way to, you can go through the whole process of jury selection. You're going to end up, especially with a high profile case, you could very easily end up 
with people like that. The whole jury could be people that have already made up their mind. How do you know? Can't know for sure. But that should be the worry. He's concerned that they might be ignorant about the case going in. Yeah, moron, that's exactly how it's supposed to work. You want to find people who never heard of the case, and then the, the first time they're hearing about it is when they're hearing both sides presented in a court of law. It's very difficult to find those kinds of people, especially with a case like this, but that's what you're supposed to look for. This is just like, this is as dumb as, who was it? Chelsea Handler, who uh, sent out a tweet a few weeks ago saying that it's, it's outrageous that we would be giving Derek Chauvin a trial when we all saw the crime on video. What kind of country is this where we give a man a trial? What kind of country is it where we can't just take him out back and, um, you know, put one in his head behind the shed somewhere? She, she, was, she was outraged by the simple fact of someone receiving a trial in front of a jury of their peers. And he's outraged by the same thing. This is just, I mean, we can laugh about it because it's so stupid. You know, maybe I should, I should pause and step, step back um, and even apologize. I've been calling him a moron this whole time, and I shouldn't be saying that uh, because that lets him off the hook. You know, to call him a moron or Chelsea Handler. Well, Chelsea Handler probably really is just a moron. Um, but moron lets them off the hook. I mean, they know better. This is evil. This is an evil person who you just heard there. He obviously knows how juries work and that that is how a jury is supposed to work. But he is setting up ahead of time to try to ruin these people's lives if they don't come to the verdict that, that, um, you know, he arrived at a verdict in his head a second after seeing the video, didn't need any additional information, nothing. He already decided. In fact, he decided the verdict on the George Floyd case before it even happened. Okay? He had decided that morning when George Floyd was still alive and walking around. He had decided a year before that. Okay? Because he, he's already decided that if a white police officer kills black men, it is racism, period. He's already decided that. And he wants jurors who have the same delusion that he does. Absolutely contemptible. It really is. Because think, I mean, these jurors, man. You talk about a lose-lose situation. You know, and... and, and their whole lives at the after this, probably going to be ruined because of guys like that. All right, let's uh, move on. Number two. Okay, I wanted to play this. Um, so we have another alleged police brutality video that that went uh, viral, and a lawsuit has been filed by the alleged victim, Lieutenant Karen Nazario of Virginia. He's an army lieutenant. He obviously didn't die, hence he you know, filed a lawsuit personally, but he was pepper sprayed and taken to the ground during a traffic stop recently. The full video is several minutes long. We can't play the whole thing. But um, as always, we'll play part of it. As always, the video fails to show what led up to this, um, but here's the part or part of the part that we are able to see. Let's watch. What's going on? You're fixing to ride the lightning, son. Get out of the car now. Get out of the car now! Get out of the car! Sir, just get out of the car! Work with us and we'll talk to you! Get out of the car! You received our order! Obey it! I'm, I'm, I'm honestly afraid to get out. Can I? Okay, so yeah, he's got you his, should be! Get out! He's got his hands out the window, but he's not, he's not getting get out. out of the car. Now. I have not committed any crime. You're being stopped by a traffic violation. You're not cooperating at this point right now. You're under arrest for, for you're being detained, okay? You're being detained for obstruction for of justice. Violation. I do not have to get out of the vehicle. You haven't even told really? me why I'm being stopped. Really? Get, your get, hands get out of the car now. Get out of the car. Get your hands off me. Get, out of the get your hands off me. You know what? Get your hands off me. Not get a problem. Hands off me. Back up there. I didn't do anything. Don't do that. Sir, get out of the car now. Hey, sir. Get out of the car now. Sir, look, I'm trying to talk get out. To you. Okay. I'm trying to I'm talk. Get out. Just get, get out of my car. Can you please get relax? Out. Can get you out. please relax? Get out of the car right I, now. Now. This is not how you treat a vet. Uh, I'm actively serving this country, and this is how you're going to treat me. Back up, Daniel. I didn't do anything. Back up. Whoa, hold on. Daniel. What's going on? Hold on. 
Okay. Then he just pepper sprayed him. Like I said, there's a, there's a lot more to the to the uh, the video than that, but you know that was uh, as much as we can play on the show. So the officer there that that pepper sprayed um, Lieutenant Nazario has been fired. Um, and already you could now you, you watch video like that, uh, especially just the clip we just played. And but even if you watch the entire video, you can go online and find it. Again, you don't see what leads up to it, so there's still context missing. But um, that's enough to say, okay, it, it, it appears the police officers are, number one, you got two problems. Just for, as a non-expert, I'm looking at that. My immediate reaction is uh, officers are being more aggressive than they need to be. And they also seem to be, they're, they're kind of contradicting each other. Because the one officer is like reaching his hand in, is going to help the guy get out. And the other one's saying, no, don't reach your hand in. Like they can't even, they're not exactly on the same page. That's a problem. And the other officer is saying stuff like, you know, you're fixing to ride the light, lightning sun. I mean, come on. It's like stuff that you say in an action movie, but you're a police officer. Now, um, a guy named Zeke Arkham is a, a, also a police officer and a black man. And uh, he chimed in on this case. And I thought what he had to say was, and this is always so incredible when you, on the rare occasion when you get to hear something like this. Because here is someone offering their perspective on a alleged police brutality incident. And it's a balanced, reasonable, non-emotional perspective. And I really appreciated it for that reason. Let's listen to what he has to say. What went wrong? What went wrong was that the cops should not have given conflicting orders. Usually before you go on patrol, you just you establish who the communication officer is. And the other guy just kind of stands there looking good during the whole car stop or whatever has to go on. Usually the better talker of the two is a communication officer. What else went wrong? Uh, from what I understand, the lieutenant drove for a mile uh, after he was stopped, after the cops initial to him that he needed him to pull over to the side of the road. That's not good. That now makes the cops think that something is wrong and they're gonna treat this now as a felony car stop, which is what you saw on the tape or the video. Um, what else went wrong? Once you're pulled over, especially like that, all you do is follow instructions. Now, if the cops say, put your hands outside the window, you put your hands outside the window. If the cops say, exit the vehicle, you reach outside, uh, grab your door handle, and you exit the vehicle that way. Okay, your seatbelt should already be off, but if it's not, you ask, can I take my seatbelt off? I have my seatbelt on, okay? Um, after that, that, after that, you do what the cops say. It's not the time to now start asking questions and demanding answers. That's not what you should be doing, especially after driving an hour when after the cops put their lights on. That's not good, okay? What went wrong, the cop at the end should not have said, don't report this, because now it makes you seem like you're doing something wrong. So, I mean, there was wrong on both parts, but there was more wrong on the lieutenant's part who thought that it was now his place to start checking the cops. Amazing. So it's just a, a looking at the situation, uh, no, no bias going into it, wrong on both ends, a balanced, sensible, reasonable. Now, uh, this man, who's his name? He Zeke Arkham. He, he knows more about police procedure than I do, certainly. Uh, but even from my perspective, it makes a lot of sense what he had to say. Makes a lot of sense. It's just, it's so refreshing because you rarely hear that anymore about these kinds of incidents. And because what happens is something like this occurs and you have to uh, immediately, we we stuff it into a certain narrative and it's, it can't, we can never have, you know, something happens and it just happened and that's it. And it's a, it's an, it's an isolated incident and uh, you you come to any conclusion you want to, and then you move on. We can't do that anymore. Everything that happens especially if it's on camera and it involves police and a black man, everything that happens, it's, it is a, it's a national crisis. It's a symptom of some great, um, you know, some deep-seated problem. And also, you have to put all the blame on one side or the other. And, and usually, taking police out of it for a second, in, 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 in most human interactions, 
that turn hostile, most of the time, there's going to be some amount of blame on both sides. Most of the time, it takes two to tango. It doesn't, again, it doesn't matter if it's police, involves the police or not. If you're watching a video where interaction between two people escalates in this way, most of the time, it's not going to be only one party that is fully responsible. So I think that seems uh, pretty reasonable. And by the way, something not totally dissimilar to this actually has happened to me. I wasn't pepper sprayed by the police, but uh, years ago, when I think I was probably 19 or 20 years old, I was driving along residential neighborhood. Um, I was getting pulled over for speeding and I was speeding, I hate to admit. And uh, the, the cop, you know, they put the lights on and I, it, it seemed to me, okay, we're on a residential road. There's, there's, not, a, there's not much of a shoulder here. And I knew, because I, I knew the road, I knew that like a mile or two up, there was a place where I could safely pull in. And so I made this, this stupid decision to keep on driving until I got to that spot. And uh, of course, the cops are now thinking, why isn't this guy pulled over? Just like we just heard in the video there. So the cop is thinking, okay, he's not pulling over. Something is wrong. He's going to try to run away. He's, he's got drugs in the car. He's stashing. He's doing something. Finally, I pull over and the cop rolls up and he's got another cop car coming behind him. I guess he radioed for somebody. And they pulled me out of the car, and it was a, it was a, pretty scary situation for a few minutes because they didn't understand why I wasn't pulling over. But as soon as they got out of the car and told me to get out of the car, I did, and I listened. And then I was able to go home with just a speeding ticket, and I wasn't pepper sprayed. All right. Um, okay. Let's let's move on to this. Asa Hutchinson appeared on State of the Union to defend his pro-child castration position. Now, already, he, you know, we, we know he was on Tucker Carlson last week, and that did not go well for him at all. And of course, it's not going to go well for him. He is, again, defending an indefensible position. There is nothing that you can say in defense of it that, that, that will sound reasonable or moral. But he, he can't get enough of it. So here he is on cable news again, defending the same position, and he comes across as bad as he did before. Let's listen. Anytime you go against the grain, you're going to get that kind of blowback. I think it's healthy uh, for our society. I think it's helpful for our party to have that kind of vigorous debate about an important issue. And uh, to me, uh, this is about the future of our party. Are we going to be a narrow party? Uh, that uh, expresses ourselves in intolerant ways? Or are we going to uh, be a broad-based party that shows conservative principles, but also compassion in dealing with some of the most difficult issues that parents face, that individuals face? And at some point, I had to say, uh, I've got to remind uh, my wonderful Republican colleagues that we are the party of Ronald Reagan, that uh, believes in a limited role of government. And let's just ask that question. Uh, sure, I'm, I sign pro-life bills, and I know that there's a role for government even in the social issues, but we have to fundamentally ask ourselves, do we need to do this? Is there a better way? Is this something that we need to leave to the hand in the home or in the church, our faith leaders to handle? Is this calling out for a government solution? We're fighting that in Washington. Uh, let's fight it also in our state capitals and within the and fight for the principles of our party. What a sniveling, repugnant snake this guy is. Yeah, talking about compassion. The only person he has compassion for, it, it, this, is, this is not compassion at all. This is him being a whore for his corporate pimps. That's what this really is. Walmart, someone told him to take this position. That's why he's taking it. And now he's uh, framing it as compassion. Let me be the first to say, Asa, that uh, yeah, I, I am f fully intolerant of the castration of children. I'm, I'm intolerant of all forms of child abuse, and um, be it physical abuse, psychological, emotional. And, and the thing is, what we're doing with kids with the gender stuff, that is all forms of abuse, of abuse rolled into one. It's physical, sexual, emotional, and psychological abuse all rolled into one horrifying package. And yeah, I'm intolerant of all of that. Deeply intolerant of it. There, there's certainly a place for intolerance, and that's the place. 
if there's, if there's ever an occasion for the government to intervene, it would be with something like this. And by the way, I don't care when it comes to the abuse of children. What it, I don't care if the, the parents are okay. Oftentimes when a child is being abused, the parent is okay with the abuse because the parent is the one um, doing the abuse. Does that, does that make it more acceptable? Does that mean we should butt out and mind our own business? And if the doctors are involved in the abuse, it doesn't make a difference to me. Only in the case, it only makes a difference in the sense that it makes the abuse so much worse. And it gives us so much more cause for the government to get involved. But I'm explaining all this, and, and Asa Hutchinson obviously knows that. There's a reason why this guy, at the age of 70, has been in public life forever, like all these people have. And he has, as far as I know, 70 years of life. He has never once um, spoken out in favor of child castration until this past week. Never indicated that he's in favor of it. Never indicated his belief that, you know, a, a boy can have a little girl trapped inside him. And the only way to set that inner girl free is to castrate the boy. He, he, 70 years of life, he never indicated that he, that he believes that. This is a sudden conversion experience. His road to Damascus moment. Um, that he that he's experienced. And we know that it's not because of self-reflection and prayer. Unless he's praying to Satan, I don't know. Um, number five, this is from the New York Post. It says, at least 46% of Americans want to see Dwayne The Rock Johnson run for president. A new poll is found. More than 30,000 people were surveyed by People say for their take on celebrities, including Johnson and Matthew McConaughey, who may be interested in politics. 29% said they want to see both McConaughey and Johnson, who are eyeing runs for Texas governor and U.S. president, respectively, run for office. Now, okay, 46% want to see The Rock run. That doesn't mean that 46% said they'd vote for him. They just want to see him run. If I want to take the most optimistic interpretation of this poll, maybe it's that people figure it'd be entertaining to have a guy like The Rock run for president. And although they wouldn't really vote for him, they'd like to see him in the mix for entertainment purposes. Even that, I don't think is very justified because I, I think we need to get away from seeing politics as a, a, a form of recreation and entertainment. And actually approach the issue like adults. But I know, I know we're way past that. So We're at a point now where... Um, you, you probably need Joe Biden may be the last guy to be elected president who does not have the celebrity factor. We're probably at a point now where you're not going to win unless you have the celebrity factor. So he, I, I, I think the rock could win. Assuming he runs it as, as a Democrat, which I guess he would. Oh, he certainly would run as a Democrat. Um, obviously all the, the leftists are going to vote for him because he's running as a Democrat. Could he siphon enough so-called conservatives? who buy his whole shtick on Instagram and everything and his public persona? Probably, yeah. Um, finally, I want to play this, just a little bonus content. Brian Stelter on CNN. Now, I never watch his show, but um, every time I see a clip of his show on, online, all he's ever doing is talking about Fox News. So I, and I say this, this is a sincere question. Does he report on anything but what Fox News personalities are doing. He is like, he's, he's like the TMZ for Fox News personalities. He's like the paparazzi for Tucker Carlson and the rest of the bunch. And so here he is um, taking issue with Fox News personalities for an especially stupid reason. Let's listen. It's really important to see all these TV anchors, personalities showing themselves getting the shot. We've seen a lot of vaccine selfies from lots of folks at lots of different networks. Uh, it's been really inspiring to see. You know, the Today Show even brought the, 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 the co-hosts outside for a live group vaccination this week. And Rachel Maddow on Friday on MSNBC talked about how she was really fearful of the needle, really worried about it. And yet it was important to get the shot. And she did. And there she is talking about it on air. So I say all of that to make the following point. 
Where are Tucker and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram? Where is Ainsley Earhart and Steve Ducey and Brian Kilmeade? Where are the biggest stars on Fox getting vaccinated? I get it's a personal choice. I get that's between, you know, the hosts and their healthcare provider. But everybody else is doing it, right, Matt? I mean, all across television, all these anchors are, are rolling up their sleeves. Why do you think we haven't seen the biggest stars on Fox News get vaccinated or show us their vaccine selfies? <laughs> Roll up your sleeves and take those selfies. All right, let's get down to business. Let's get down to work. Roll up the sleeves. Let's take some selfies. All right, that's your responsibility. I get, I understand it's a personal choice, but I am outraged that you have not taken a picture of yourself um, taking advantage of this personal choice and post it, posting it online. I'm, I'm outraged by that. It's a personal choice between you and your healthcare provider, but I demand to see pictures. Okay, calm down, you weirdo. He is, he is actually angry that he hasn't seen a picture of Tucker Carlson getting a shot. Is this some kind of weird fetish on his end? I don't, I don't understand it at all. But you see that um, right there, the screenshot. Fox's biggest stars have not shared vaccine selfies. I swear to you, when I saw that screenshot online, I thought it was a joke. I really did. I'm still, I, I can't help it. I'm an optimist when it comes down to it. I saw that screenshot. I thought, no, come on. They haven't gotten that stupid over there, have they? No. Nope. My optimism misleads me yet again. Story of my life. All right, let's move on to reading the comments. Um, First comment says, teens themselves have been trying to get James Charles deplatformed for months now, but TikTok and other companies backing him are actually deleting the post, showing proof of his behavior. Thanks for blasting this out for more people to see. Uh, I got a lot of comments like those and messages, too, from people saying that a lot of teenagers in James Charles's audience have been the ones calling attention to his alleged, uh, alleged preying on underage boys. And in this case, you have the big corporations like TikTok and YouTube and his corporate sponsors that are keeping him platformed in spite of that. This, this is one case where a de-platforming campaign is wholly justified and needed. There's a lot of very good evidence, including James Charles, as we played on Friday, his own words, confessing, for example, that he's tried to fly high school boys out to meet him, presumably for sex. Uh, So there's a lot of that kind of thing. Very good evidence that he is uh, someone who's at least attempting to prey on underage boys. Yeah. uh, Deplatform someone for that? Yes, absolutely. Deplatform someone for sharing controversial opinions? No. But if they're using their platform allegedly to prey on children, yeah, definitely. But of course, in our backwards world, it's the opposite is how it works. You get deplatformed for, for the controversial opinions, but if all you're doing is preying on underage children, then uh, you can keep your platform. All right. This is from S. Williams says, no adult who has ever used the phrase that's triggering, that's triggering unironically should be taken seriously for another moment in their entire life. Um, yeah. Well, of course, along with any adult that uses the word uh, lived experience. I mean, there are a lot of phrases and a lot of opinions, frankly, that someone can share that uh, although they have the right to share them means that I personally can never take them seriously again. Bex McKay says Matt's plan with the shirt is to wear it out of spite until the haters grow to genuinely love it. And it's already working. He's smarter than us all. And Morgan says, Matt Walsh's polka dot shirt is to Julia Child's pearls. Iconic. You should probably invest in a few more colors, Matt. Well, I told you. Joshua says, I'm happy to see you are indeed a man of your word and wore your gentleman's blouse again. Gentleman's blouse. Don't take my laughter as as me approving of you calling my shirt a gentleman's blouse. It is just a shirt. Have you people actually never seen a shirt with dots on it. It's, it's, I, I, you know, I don't do a lot of clothing shopping, which maybe is, is clear, but I, I, I think that that's a pretty common pattern to see on clothing, even for men. Am I wrong? In any case, I promise I wear it once a week and I will certainly do that. Uh, Krish the neat says, fa fa fines are a real thing in Samoa and quite common. It means in the way of the woman. I lived there as a kid and will always remember the huge guy in a muumuu named Rosie 
He ran the motel where we were staying in, staying in and dressed like a woman with makeup and a long braid. He also had a wife and kids. Well, and there you go. So, so what you're saying there proves my point that I made on Friday. You may have in other cultures people who break the gender barriers and so on, uh, so-called, quote-unquote, non-binary people. But the guy wearing the muumuu named Rosie with a wife and kids, right, correct me if I'm wrong, he's not actually claiming that he literally is a woman. He may be dressing the part, but there's no confusion about what he actually is biologically. We, are, we in the West are unique in that confusion. And that's the point that we were making. You know, you can always tell when someone didn't get a good night's sleep. They got the bags under the eyes. They look gross and tired. I don't know why that grosses me out, but it does. But even worse than that, you, you can tell when someone else didn't get a good night's sleep, but you, when you yourself are experiencing that, it just, it can kind of ruin the entire day. Why go through that if you don't have to? And if you get a Helix mattress, then that means you, you don't have to experience bad sleep ever again. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep references to the perfect mattress for you. If you like a mattress that's really soft or firm, if you sleep on your side or your back, no matter how you sleep, no matter what your preferences are, they've got something that is made just for you. You don't need to take their word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2019 and 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Just go to helix, helixsleep.com Walsh. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. I've taken it myself. And then they're going to send you a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life, guaranteed. Uh, I have, and this is exactly what my experience was. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off and free pillows with all mattress orders for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash Walsh. That's helixsleep.com slash Walsh for up to $200 off your mattress order. Well, it's already episode five, and uh, we can't get enough of Candace Owens or her new show, Candace. If you haven't checked it out yet, um, I don't know what you're waiting for. You got to go do it. The Fearless Thought Leader hosts a lively series of guests each week for a discussion panel, interviews. This week, she'll be hosting comedian and podcaster Adam Carolla. Make sure you tune in. You don't want to miss that. The show streams on Fridays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central at dailywire.com, but you can get the audio podcast also, Candace, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you need some Candace Owens in your podcast feed, look no further. Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe today. And be sure to leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. Let's get now to our daily cancellation. For our daily cancellation on this Monday, we, re we revisit the subject of fat acceptance and body positivity. This is a topic which has popped up several times during the segment, uh, during this particular segment, daily cancellation. You might even say that it weighs heavily on my mind. What brings it up today are the slew of articles preemptively condemning anyone who shames anyone else over their weight gain during the COVID lockdowns. The media is anticipating that millions of Americans are going to emerge from their cocoons this summer like bulbous, flightless butterflies, their time in lockdown having transformed them from overweight to even more overweight. But we are warned, do not shame anyone for this. It's not their fault. The Daily Beast has an article from Elena um, Demopoulos. That's how you pronounce her last name. It's titled, Our Bodies Emerge from Lockdown to a Fat-Shaming Chorus. Ignore it. And she says, quote, If you want to lose the quarantine 15, that's okay. And if you don't or can't, that's okay too. Find the best way to exercise that works for you. Well, later in the article, in an especially revealing passage, she quotes Amy Conway, who's the editor-in-chief of Health Magazine. And she says, quote, A lot of people have been sedentary, and there are concerns about going back to work. They might feel more winded going up a flight of stairs. So moving your body throughout the day is uh, certainly something we'll encourage. It's not about how to lose the quarantine 15. It's about making people feel good. That's all that matters. Slate has a similar diatribe, this one titled, How to Survive Post-Pandemic Weight Loss Pressure. The article written, uh, is written by a Rebecca Onion. And no, I'm not sure why the ladies at the Daily Beast and Slate all have names that sound made up, but Miss Onion lectures the reader not to post about their workout routines or, or their weight loss strategies because then your social media followers who prefer to be lazy bastards, my words, not hers, might feel bad. And remember, as we learned from the Daily Beast, this is all about making people feel good. That's all that matters. By the way, if you're wondering, the experts agree. Which experts? Doesn't matter. We've learned that too. The experts have spoken. Doesn't matter. You don't need to know the details, but the experts have said this. The website verywellhealth.com has this headline, quote, experts, stop making people feel bad about COVID weight gain. So 
We need the experts to tell us don't make people feel bad. Uh, this one is written by Carla Delgado, who is at least uh, appears to be a real person based on her name. Now, I must admit off the bat that I can't relate to any of this content. Um, first of all, I've personally been out of lockdown since March. And by that, I mean March of 2020. I never really entered into lockdown, except to the extent that I was forced to when everything around me shut down. But even when everything was shut down, we were still very active in my family. More active than we'd ever been, if anything, because there wasn't much else to do besides run around outside, go for hikes, go for walks, and all that kind of thing. That's why my wife and I both emerged from this past year in very good physical shape. Now, I realized that my bragging about my own fitness, um, that by doing that, I just did the very thing that Slate and the Daily Beast warned me not to do. So why did I do it? Well, because they told me not to do it. And also because I'm not going to be made to feel embarrassed and ashamed of being physically healthy. Because that's insane. You know, in my life, like most people, I've been out of shape and I've been in shape. And I mean, I'm, I'm always some kind of shape, just not one that I prefer all the time. And I always felt embarrassed about being out of shape, not about being in shape. And that's how it should be. And why is it? Because I was out of shape because I was lazy. It's embarrassing to be lazy. A person ought to be embarrassed by that. They shouldn't dwell in that embarrassment. They shouldn't stew in it, wallow in it. I'm not recommending depression and self-loathing as a strategy. I'm recommending that people simply confront the reality of their own personal situation, uh, admit that it's not ideal to be overweight, admit that they have control over it, and then take control and change it. See, the problem is that the, the body positivity mentality precludes people from trying to change the things they don't like about themselves. And that fact points to the glaring self-contradiction in this whole mindset. It's a contradiction that has, of course, been evidence, been in evidence uh, for, for a long time, long before the pandemic, for example. Here's a clip from a show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. It, was, it just went viral over the past couple of weeks, but it originally aired, I think, in 2019. So here's an overweight woman explaining how it's not her fault that she's overweight because racism did it to her. Let's watch. You can't get access to good health care, good insurance. The research says that black women, when we do the same diets as white women, we lose less weight and we lose it slower, even when we're following the diet than our white women counterparts. And what, and what public health practitioners think is that our stress responses in the body change our metabolism. It's literally that the racism that you're experiencing and the struggle to make ends meet actually means the diet don't work for you the same. I mean, we've made everything else racist. Why not make carbs and calories racist too? But whether racism is the lame excuse for gaining weight or it's the pandemic or whatever else we come up with so that we can avoid going for a jog, because that's really what all this is about. Um, th that the whole body positivity movement is just one long way around having to go for a jog. But whatever the excuse is, the fact is that we're making excuses. Okay, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because we're, we're, we are both making excuses for weight gain and going to great lengths to make sure that people don't feel bad about their weight gain. And yet at the same time, the body positivity movement tells us that we should be proud of our bodies, no matter their shape, no matter how many extra pounds of lard may be dropped, draped over them. We should celebrate our fatness, not our fitness, we're told. So, so then which is it? You know, if you ought to be proud of your fat body, then why are you making excuses for the fact that it's fat? It seems like an oddly schizophrenic message. If you're declaring, well, fat is beautiful. I'm so proud of it. And also it isn't my fault that I'm like this. Don't blame me. This is a case of having the cake and eating it too, which ironically is also how you put the extra pounds on. Point being, you really have to choose, right? Either obesity is a disease, an affliction, something that has befallen you by pure happenstance and misfortune, or it's something beautiful and powerful and worth celebrating. It, it, it can't really be both. I mean, let's think of an example. We would all agree that bone cancer, for instance, is an affliction, a disease, a terrible misfortune. But we would also agree that, that we don't call it beautiful. We don't celebrate it. Neither would we say that a person with cancer should be ashamed, obviously, but we do recognize it as a bad thing and something that if we can, we want to stop, get rid of, prevent. Ultimately, we want to cure it. Cancer is bad. We want to destroy cancer. There's no controversy about that. With obesity, there should also be no controversy. It's a bad thing. In many cases, it's a fatal thing. 
we should want to get rid of it. Fortunately, getting rid of obesity is a thousand times easier than getting rid of cancer. All you have to do in the majority of cases is eat less and exercise more. For almost every overweight person on the planet and throughout history, in, in almost every case, that is enough to solve the problem. It is a very simple solution. I didn't say an easy solution, a simple one. The only thing that makes obesity confusing and controversial is that the body positivity movement can't figure out its own position on the subject. They want us to both pity the obese for their obesity and also celebrate the obese for their obesity. But you see, a trait cannot be both pitiful and praiseworthy. It can't be a disease and beautiful. What kind of thing is that to say? What is it, a beautiful disease? You have to choose between the two. It's either beautiful or it's disease. We should either celebrate it or it's not your fault. It's a terrible thing that happened to you. One or the other. Now, personally, between the two options, um, I would hope you choose the woe is me. It's not my fault. It's because of racism. It's because of the pandemic approach. Well, you just heard there in the, in the, in the, uh, in the video clip, I, I'd prefer that. Go with that. Because at least then you're admitting that obesity is a bad thing. A thing we should want to get rid of, not embrace. That's not much, but it's a start. We can work with that. Now it's just a matter of getting you to accept a little bit of personal accountability. And you can start by being accountable for the fact that you are today canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Koromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, new police incidents roil the country as riots break out again in Minneapolis. Corporate America activates against everyday Americans and the media continue to promote COVID panic porn. That's on today's Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. 